It's Friday 2nd of June and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, we'll be finding out why the US stock market rally this year isn't all that it seems. But first, Neil's out, but I'm happy to say that Simon McAdam is joining us from our global team. Hi, Simon. Hi, David. Right. First things first, the deal to raise the US debt ceiling looks like it's in the bag. So can we get back to worrying about inflation and growth? Absolutely. We've just had the non-farm payrolls numbers for May. Uh, Another upside surprise on the headline jobs growth number. What to make of the report as regards inflation, Fed, etc.? Yeah, so actually, I think that there was more in the report to reassure the Fed than there was to worry them. So it's true that the, you know, the, the headline payrolls number beat expectations once again. But if you look at the, the alternative household measure of employment, that actually fell by 300,000, doing the mirror, the mirror image of the payroll report. And that household survey is the one that is used to calculate the unemployment rate. And accordingly, with such a big fall in employment and another rise in the labor force, the unemployment rate rose from 3.4 to 3.7%. So you had a chunky fall in employment in the household survey, a rise, a 0.3 percentage point rise in the unemployment rate, and wage growth, average earnings growth, that moderated and came in line with expectations. And to top it all off, Average weekly hours also ticked down to its lowest level since sort of the early part of the pandemic. So overall, there's more in that report to reassure the Fed than to worry it. So reassurance for the Fed there. What are the other key data points that have come out this week that you've been focused on? Where's the global outlook looking now? Yeah, we, we, we had a raft of business surveys this week. You know, we had the economic sentiment indicators out of Europe, the manufacturing PMIs globally, the ISM index and manufacturing index for the US, but also the the JOLT survey as well. Wrapping all that together, I think the big picture from the activity surveys is that the outlook for the manufacturing sector is quite bleak. So it's true that output right now and sort of in the very, very near term is being propped up by improvements in supply. So product shortages alleviating and so forth. But orders, new orders are falling. So actual demand is contracting. If you look at the new export orders index of these PMI and and ISM surveys, these indices were falling to to new cycle lows. We'd already written about this on the global economics team earlier this week that world trade has been really struggling in recent months. I think it's fallen by about 3% from its peak late last year. These surveys are just pointing to further outright declines in the level of world trade activity. And specifically looking at the ISM index in the US, again, the new orders there going back to sort of cycle lows. So pushing back against the idea that the US economy is going to avoid recession. Of course, the flip side of the fact that demand is weakening in the manufacturing sector is that price pressures are abating. So we had the price indices, both input and output prices in these business surveys. These indices fell below the 50 no change level. So what that is essentially saying is that if you look, if you take the manufacturing sector globally, a net majority of firms are now reporting outright declines in the prices of goods, of manufactured goods. So there's some good news there in terms of the pipeline price pressures from a sort of goods inflation point of view. Goods prices falling. What about on the services side? I did want to pick up on one of the other big data points this week. That was inflation numbers from the Eurozone, headline and core inflation, both off pretty sharply for May. At the same time, though, the latest employment data for the Eurozone is showing a pretty tight labour market still. 
How does that feed into the inflation story? Yeah, I mean, this was certainly an encouraging HICP print for the ECB in the sense that we did see the big falls in headline inflation. We saw a second consecutive monthly fall in core inflation. And I think most encouragingly of all, in sharp contrast to the UK, remember last week, we got the UK CPI numbers and services inflation rose in the UK, would have been much to the alarm of the Bank of England. But services and inflation in the Eurozone has fallen. And consequently, so that, 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 that's good news for the ECB. But as you say, we also learned this week that the unemployment rate in the Eurozone reached a fresh record low. So on the one hand, you've got some encouraging signs from the inflation data, but you've got a very, very tight labor market. And so consequently, I think it's still it's still early days for the ECB to think about stopping its hiking cycle, concluding its hiking cycle. In fact, on Thursday, Christine Lagarde gave a speech in which she said that there was no clear evidence of a sustained reduction in inflation that would reassure the ECB. So even the ECB themselves are saying this is too early. So consequently, a June hike is still on for the ECB, probably even a July 25 basis point hike too. So we're sticking with our forecast for the ECB's deposit rate to peak at 3.75% in this cycle. So you've spoken about weakness in the manufacturing sector. You're just talking now about Eurozone inflation dynamics. But when we look at the, the advanced economies as a whole, is the disinflation story one about, about goods inflation? Primarily, disinflation has been about energy inflation coming down very sharply over the past year. But increasingly, it's also been, I mean, it's particularly for the US, but also increasingly in other advanced economies, it's also becoming a story of goods disinflation too. The most sticky and persistent part of the inflation story is in services. And this is why it's services inflation specifically that is going to be drawing the most attention from, from people in central banks. Policymakers are really focused on the outlook for services inflation. Because that is ultimately, that is the part of the inflation, the CPI baskets that are most driven by domestic factors over which they have control using monetary policy. So consequently, this is why it's, it's, it's encouraging that we've had, particularly in the case of the Eurozone, that we've started to see that perhaps services inflation has already peaked. Nonetheless, still a couple more rate hikes to go in the Eurozone, certainly some more in, in the UK as well after that shocking April CPI report. Potentially, the Fed's not done yet to, to, to be seen. You had a report out in March explaining how monetary policy changes transmit through economies, and you concluded then that most of the tightening had yet to feed into the system. And that, at the time, only added to our conviction that most advanced economies were heading for recession. Given where we are now, uh, looking at more of these, these rates coming, Presumably, that means even tighter conditions, more constrained activity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, compared to where we were since I wrote that report, we've uh, we've added in a couple of rate hikes, both on the US side of things and also in the UK, and because of the extra resilience of activity that we've seen in the opening months of this year. So, yeah, I mean, it's true that like long dated bond yields have been coming back down again, but there are all sorts of elements of broad financial conditions affect the real activity in the real economy that are still extraordinarily tight. For example, on Thursday, I refreshed our financial conditions indices to take account of the whole of all the data that we've got for the whole month of May. And these FCIs, for financial conditions indices, 
are at still at the broadly their highest level since the global financial crisis major advanced economies. So consequently, the, the, the story of tight financial conditions posing a significant headwind to growth in the second half of this year, that hasn't changed. So it's still the case that more than half of the effects of the aggressive monetary tightening cycle are yet to be felt. So financial conditions still looking tight. What does that mean in terms of recession? I think it means that in the absence of really strong countervailing forces, the base case still has to be that there's going to be recessions in major advanced economies in the second half of this year. That was Simon McAdam from our global team on the week's data and how they've shaped the economic outlook. Now, at the time I'm recording this, the S&P 500's up nicely thanks to that jobs report. What's more, a broad range of the index's components are doing well. That's not been the case for most of this year. The S&P 500 may seem to have had a good 2023, suggesting the US economy is in good shape as well. But look a bit closer at what's driven the benchmark and a very different picture emerges. Oliver Allen and Adam Hoyes from our financial markets team have been analysing what's been driving the S&P this year, and they've come up with some striking conclusions about an intensely focused rally, and one that looks unsustainable. I spoke to them earlier and I started by asking Oliver what's been going yeah, I mean, on. What's been happening with the S&P 500 has, has been really interesting. You've seen the index overall make pretty pretty strong gains, pretty solid gains. Overall, S&P 500 is up something like 10% in 2023 so far. But if you look under the hood, you kind of realize there's a, there's a bit more to that story. So you've got a situation really where you have a very small number of the largest tech firms doing very, very well. And then the rest of the index, so most other large cap US companies have really gone sideways or they've, or they've gone down a bit. So, I mean, there's different ways you can cut up the numbers. So sometimes you see people strip out the fan companies or strip out another basket of, of big tech firms. But the way we've done it is just to, to sort of chop the index up by size. So if you pick out the biggest five companies in the S&P 500, all of which are tech giants, and you look at like a market cap weighted portfolio of those, so those, those five companies would have returned something like 50% year to date. It's a really blockbuster, blockbuster gains from those firms. Uh, if you look at the next 95 companies in the index, those are something like 3%, so really quite mediocre gains. And then if you look at the next 400 companies, so I suppose the rest of the index, that's, that's pretty much flat this year. So yeah, really a case, to be honest, this year so far of, of the US stock market doing well overall, but under the hood, it's the, the big tech firms kind of leaving everyone else in their, in their dust. Quite striking, isn't it? So, so just to put some, some names mm. on it, and even as companies like NVIDIA, Apple, Google and the like have been pushing up the headline index with these huge gains under the surface, as you say, you've got these blue chip names of, of US industry, Caterpillar, Coca-Cola, Johnson Johnson, etc. At best, badly underperforming the index and at worst, they're, they're down double digits. What does all this say about where the stock market is going? Yeah, I mean, like you sort of indicate, David, I guess the first thing this suggests is that you shouldn't look at the, the headline number for the stock market and sort of go, oh, stock market is up 10% this year. Clearly, the economy is doing quite well. I think what this narrowness of the, of the stock market rally suggests is that investors aren't really all that positive about the kind of macro outlook for stocks. I think it's more a case of a, a sort of wave of, of techno-optimism, giving a big boost to the, to the tech giants. And as, as, as you say, a lot of other stuff really not doing, doing that well. I mean, in terms of kind of where we go from here, I think the answer is, is a little bit nuanced, really. On the one hand, it's definitely true that we've seen top-heavy rallies in the past, right? Like rallies where the stock market continues to go up for a long time, but it's, it's the biggest firms doing, doing the best. So I guess if you think back to the kind of mid to late 1990s and, and the sort of rally that, that morphed into the dot-com boom, 
that was a period where the stock market, the S&P 500 was doing very, very well. And, and within that, the largest firms were, were doing best. And then I guess you can also look back if you, if you gloss over the short-lived COVID sell-off, if you look back to kind of 2019 to, to 2021, that was also a period where clearly we saw some, some pretty impressive gains from the S&P 500 and, and really it being the, the tech giants and the largest companies leading the charge. I suppose a very big difference between what was happening then and what was happening now, and, and one we think that's very important when we're thinking about well breadth and, and narrowness of the stock market and what it means is that what we're seeing now is is the biggest companies doing fantastic, and then most of the rest of the of the index and mid cap and small cap companies doing pretty poorly, and that's quite a big change from what you saw in the in the mid to late nineties and in the early years of the pandemic, where it was the big tech stocks doing best and and large companies doing best, but other companies in the S&P 500 and also the mid caps and small caps also making pretty respectable gains, even if those gains weren't quite as large. And I think if we're, we're wondering, well, is this is what we've seen lately sustainable? I think the lesson from history is really that, I mean, you can have these top heavy rallies in stocks, but you need to have a solid macro backdrop that's a tide lifting all boats. So, I mean, you had in the 1990s, I mean, strong growth throughout the time around the, around the pandemic, we had falling interest rates, giving a big boost to valuations. And, and I suppose from late 2020 onwards, this, this strong economic recovery. And if we're now asking, is this going to continue and, and can the US stock market continue to deliver? I guess it really comes down to a question of, well, is there going to be a, a positive macro backdrop that, that supports stocks in general? And I guess on that front, we, we sort of have our doubts. So I guess we're, we're kind of of the view that economic growth in, in the US and a lot of other advanced economies is, is going to disappoint over the rest of this year, essentially, and that that is, is going to prove to be the, the stock market's undoing. So unlikely that these beaten down stocks start to follow the likes of, of NVIDIA, Meta, higher. Yeah. Remind us, what's our forecast for the S&P 500 this year? So our forecast is for a N2023 forecast for the S&P 500 of about 3,800. So that compares to about 4,200 now. So we're sort of calling for a roughly roughly 10% decline in the index from here. So um, not a kind of new bear market and, and not retesting the lows we saw late last year, but still a pretty downbeat outcome for, for stocks. Adam, I'd like to bring you in here because you, you've just done some more work on this issue. How unusual is it to see a small number of the biggest stocks in the index outperforming the way that these, these tech giants have in recent years? It's certainly not the norm, I'd say. We've been doing a little bit of work over the last week, putting together some more historical data. So we've been using a data set compiled by Kenneth French that goes back to the 1920s. And that splits up the stock market in sort of tens based on, based on size. And... The main observation from that really is that the smaller firms over the long run tend to do better than the than the largest firms in, in the index. That's not to say that we haven't had periods like this before where the largest firms have, have done well. There's been, been notable periods where, where that's happened, as Ollie mentioned, in, in the 1990s, for example. But yeah, over, over the long run, it's certainly not the norm and, and, and smaller firms do tend to outperform. So what lies ahead then for these big stocks relative to the rest of the market? I know you've talked about historical examples. In this case, is there a chance they remain outperformers? Are we going by what the history books are telling us? Um, it certainly wouldn't be unheard of for, for the largest stocks to go on outperforming for maybe another year or two. When the largest caps have outperformed the rest of the market to about the extent that they have done over the last year or so, there's certainly been historical examples where they've, where they've gone on doing that for the next, for the next two years. But one of, the, one of the key takeaways from the data work we've been doing is that back to 1926, it has never been the case that the largest stocks go on to outperform the rest of the market over the next five years when they're in the position they are now. 
So yeah, the sort of near term is maybe a little bit more uncertain, but I think we'd be pretty confident to say that the large cap stocks won't provide their better returns over, over the next five years. You mentioned these historical examples. Can you talk through some of them? I think we'd probably say that there's three examples that potentially resemble what we expect to, to play out in the market over the next next few months and years. The first is is perhaps 1929. Without sort of scaremongering, that's not that's on our forecast for a crash of that scale. But it is quite interesting that uh, in the final months before the great crash, the largest listed companies did outperform the rest of the market. And they then continued to hold up better during the collapse over the subsequent years. We sort of see a similar type trend in the, in the early 1970s. So the better returns from, from the largest firms were also a feature of the months before the peak in the S&P 500 in, in late 1972. And they then avoided the worst of the losses during, during the sell-off in 1973. And then finally, the, the large caps propped up the S&P 500 as, as it sort of treaded water in the very late 1980s, 1989, and into early 1990. And then again, it avoided the worst of the drop in the market later in, in 1990. So we think there's, there's, there's a real sort of historical precedent for, for what we expect to play out over the next few months and years in that we see the largest caps outperform in the final stages of a rally. And then they tend to probably sort of hold up a little bit better as the, as the market sells off later on. Ollie, can I ask you, is this just a variant of the value versus growth story? Yeah. There's a lot of overlap between value versus growth. I mean, it depends what basket of growth stocks and what basket of value stocks you look at. But another prism to look at this through is, well, we've seen, for example, the largest companies in the MSCI USA growth index, which again, happen to be those, those big tech firms, they make up a pretty big share, if not around half of the, of the kind of MSCI USA growth index. So those have clearly done very well. Other growth stocks have put in a middling performance and then values kind of struggled a little bit this year. And I, and I think, yeah, it is just large extent, it is a value versus growth story. What's happened really is that investors have run up the valuations of some of the biggest US tech giants. And I suppose the reasons they've done that is because they're banking on AI, really, it seems driving a kind of renewed period of explosive earnings growth for those companies. And I think if you look at, at metrics, like what's the valuation gap between growth stocks and value stocks in the US, that's hit sort of new highs recently. So again, we're, we're very much in a situation again, like we were earlier on in the pandemic and perhaps to some extent in the dot-com boom too, where investors are kind of unusually willing to pay a very high, a very high premium for growth, basically. So for that to really be justified, these, these large tech companies are um, really going to have to deliver over the next, the next few years. So a longer term view is still that we'll get to the point where value will be outperforming growth. Yeah, it's always hard to tell exactly when you might have that reversion. It kind of feels like people have been banking on that, that reversion back to value for for some time, it seems to kind of happen. Sometimes you get a break of six months or a year where value is doing better, but it really has been growth's period for the past, I mean, 10, 15 years. But yeah, I think even if we can't say exactly when, I think we're of the view that that valuations gap between between value and growth is, is pretty compelling. And as Adam sort of said earlier, if you look one to two years ahead, it's it's kind of hard to make much of a call. But if you're looking five years ahead plus, I think there's a pretty strong case really for, for some outperformance of, of value relative to growth. That was Oliver Allen and Adam Hoyes on the narrow and unsustainable US stock market rally. I'll post their latest analysis on this in the show notes, but if you have access to CE Advance, our premium platform, you get our complete US macro analysis, all our market insight, as well as proprietary data like Simon's financial conditions indices. Learn more about that on our website, capitaleconomics.com. But that's all for this week. You can subscribe to the weekly briefing via Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.